Our scripture this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. So we're talking about some heavy-duty things, and there's little ears present. So if there's any questions about that, um, that parents might have to field, I did write a blog about that and how to talk to your kids about such things. If it comes up, um, you can find that on my blog, kevinfetter.blogspot.com. And then there's also just a, a, a children's book recommendation that I would like to really encourage the parents to take a look at that goes through some of these things. Um, uh, I forget the name of it now, but I would just invite you to go to the, the blog and take a look at that book recommendation. I think it's an excellent book that helps parents and children have a discussion about these um, sorts of things, how to um, defend themselves and um, come into healthy sexuality and, and protection. Without further ado, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you and we just ask, Lord God, that you would help us to just wrestle with a difficult passage of Scripture. And we do pray for your grace. We pray, Lord God, that you would outfit us, Lord God, with the hope of the gospel so that those who need hope will find hope this morning. And those who need recovery and healing will find healing. And we pray also, Lord God, that you would help your church to be good listeners that we would be skilled with the good news of the gospel so that we would apply it to our own hearts and to the hearts of our fellow brothers and sisters. And by so doing, Lord, may we be your church, may we be your bride, and may we grow into the fullness of what you envision your bride to be. Help us to be good lovers of one another, Lord. Help us, Lord God, to proclaim the truth, minister your word, so that we would grow to be like Christ in all of our ways. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for your presence with us, and we ask, Lord God, that now you would glorify your name and that you would build us up in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're dealing with something that's even worse than rape. This is a story of rape plus incest. And if it could possibly get any worse, and it does... It's a story of rape plus incest in the royal family. 
right under the nose of King David, who is the king of Israel. Now, it's difficult to feel the emotion, the appropriate emotion for such a horrible episode. And still, I know that the Bible wants us to feel it. Now, unlike much of Christianity's popular expression in our day, the Bible is okay with presenting us with a very ugly story and letting us feel disgusted and sad in it because that's how we should feel about such things. But at the same time, we know that Jesus Christ is God. And he is the one whom Isaiah 61 talks about. Where it says, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And if you keep reading in 2 Samuel 13, you'll see how incredibly connected that is. That Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, is upon him to come into humanity and give a beautiful headdress to those instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now this sermon is here to comfort those Victims of abuse, if you find yourself in that category. But it's also a sermon to equip the church, our church, to apply the good news of the gospel to those who are victims of abuse, sexual abuse. And I want to broaden this out just a little bit more as well. Maybe you're not a victim of sexual abuse. I will say this. That living in the world that we live in, which is broken and filled with sin, to some extent, we're all victims of some kind of abuse. All of us have darkness in our soul because of sin that has been done to us. We all know that we are sinners, and we are active in that, and we're guilty of it. But I want to take that off the table this morning and say that the Bible confronts us as sinners, yes, but it also comforts us as sufferers. It recognizes that there are ways that you are damaged. It recognizes that there are ways that you feel pain. And it's not your fault. Ways that you are completely innocent in the matter. There has been evil that has been done to you, and there is shame in your soul. And the answer isn't just brush it off, just go on, just keep on going. There's hope in Christ. And I think the Bible comes to all of us in that boat. So whether you've been sexually abused in your past or not, I think there's something in this for all of us in applying the gospel to our souls. Jesus is the great healer. He is the great counselor. Now we're going to unfold the story through Amnon, 
Jonadab, Absalom, and David. We're going to look at these characters and Tamar as well. And we're going to see how they utterly fail Tamar. Now we're going to see how Jesus Christ is Tamar's only hope for recovery. And we're going to see how David's family points all of humanity to their need for Christ. That's what I hope to see here. Now these four men are great models for us. They're great models of exactly what not to do in the case of abuse. Especially Absalom and David and how they respond. Exactly what they do, don't do that. Now, but I'm calling us to humility here, to recognize our own limitations in soul care, to help us to see how maybe we are prone to making the same kind of mistakes. Now, let's look at the stories person by person, shall we? Starting with Tamar. Here's what we know about her. She's the daughter of King David, and she was raped by her stepbrother Amnon. Tamar was young, and she was a virgin. We can tell that she was of good character. She was respected. She respected her family and her father. The most, uh, one of the things in verse 8, we see that she's probably productive and industrious, hardworking. She served her family. Perhaps the most obvious thing that we learn about Tamar is the fact that she was very beautiful and that her stepbrother Amnon was wildly attracted to her. Now, Tamar was sexually violated by Amnon, and as a result, she's locked out of Amnon's presence. Her robe, which symbolizes her purity, is torn, and she's consigned to a life of desolation in Absalom's house. She is the unfortunate victim, and I do say she is the victim. She's 100% the victim here. She has no fault in this. As the old saying goes, it always takes two to tango. Not in this case. It did not take two to tango here. She is the victim, and the question this chapter subtly screams out is her question. Where could I carry my shame? That was her question. If this thing happens to me, where could I carry my shame? We'll come back to that. Let's look at Amnon. Amnon was David's firstborn son, and he was the rightful heir to David's throne. He was said to be in love with Tamar. In fact, he wanted her so badly, verse 2 tells us, that he made himself ill because of his sister. Now, this tells us at least two things. Number one, it tells us that Amnon knew that Tamar was off limits. Verse 2, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. He knew she was off limits. And second, it tells us that Amnon was responsible for his lust. He was responsible for his lust. The Bible does not entertain the notion here that he was a victim in any way. It was not the fault of his testosterone, and it certainly was not the fault of Tamar in any way. Now, in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Amnon should have been channeling all of his energy to fighting his sin, to fighting his fantasy. Instead of channeling his energy to fighting, he channeled his energy to fantasizing about what he could not have. 
and it was a firestorm that brewed over beyond his control. And in this case, not just spiritually, but literally he wound up dead because of it. Amnon receives a plan from his brother, or from his friend, I'm sorry, Jonadab, who really is no friend, brothers and sisters. If he were a true friend to Amnon, what would he say? He would say, and he would rebuke Amnon with the rebuke that Tamar rebuked him with. No, you will violate your sister, and you will be an outrageous fool in Israel. Such a thing is not done. That's what Jonadab should have said to his friend Amnon. Instead, the crafty Jonadab devises a plan. Amnon executes the plan, and he actually empowers Amnon in his lust. This is no friend. Amnon executes the plan, and he traps Tamar. He overpowers her. He silences her, and he violates her. Now, to make matters worse... Amnon's love turns to hatred in verse 15. It says that Amnon hated her with a very great hatred after the deed was done. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had for her in the first place. So in other words, Amnon had lust. He did not have love. Love is proven over time. Lust is actually, in this case, hatred. It's just the flip side of the same coin. Lust is manipulative. It led him to be manipulative. It was hurtful. It was self-seeking, selfish. It was brash and impatient. It is everything that love is not. Of course, his lust turns into hatred because that's the only thing he had for her as he's thinking about this. None of this was motivated by love. Now, as soon as the consequences of lust came knocking at Amnon's door, what does he do? He pours it all upon Tamar. All of his wrath, all of his guilt, all of his shame, all of his disgust poured out on Tamar, asking her to atone for that, what just happened. He says, get up, go. Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And in fact, our English translation is too kind. From what I understand, in the Hebrew, the word woman wasn't even used. So it would read, it would read like this. Put this out of my presence. As if she's a thing. Put this thing out of my presence. So sick. Within 10 minutes, he destroys our life. Here's Tamar, a desolate woman now, verse 20, living in Absalom's house. Two times Amnon would not listen to Tamar, and the second time was worse than the first. She says in verse 16, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other. The first one was pretty bad. How could this be greater? 
How could this be worse? Here's what I think. I think it seems to suggest that there is no answer to her question. Where could I carry my shame? By shutting the door on Tamar, Amnon was saying to her, you will carry your shame. You. And mine. You will always be a shameful thing. Your robe will always be torn. And your soul will always be as ugly as the ash on your face that you are lamenting with. You will never have a voice. You'll never have faith in God or believe that He can be good. You'll never have power. You'll always be powerless. All of that has been taken from you. I think that's why she says, this is worse. You've consigned me to live in this life. Ten minutes ago, Amnon says, you were the daughter of a king. And now, you are a thing, a shameful thing. This is worse than the first. Not only does he do this, but he leaves her with no hope. And the remaining characters, Absalom, let's talk about him. He's the first biblical counselor, the first one to provide soul care. He's the first responder. What does he say to her? Verse 20. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So in other words, just assume a life of denial, Tamar. Just assume this isn't really a big thing. Brush it off. Act like being sexually violated is something that you can just ignore and bounce back from at some point. Live in a state of denial, he asks her. That's his advice. Keep the peace, maybe this will all blow over. Now, not only is this horrid advice, is there a word worse than horrid? I don't know. Whatever that word is, that's what this advice is. It's also hypocritical. Why is it hypocritical? Because he tells Tamar, forget about it. Just, it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal for him, and we know that because in verse 23 and 32, it tells us he was plotting the death of Amnon. Tamar, you just act like nothing happened, but I'm going to get what I want out of this situation. I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to satisfy what I want out of this. But you, on the other hand, you just act like nothing happened. Terrible advice, hypocritical. But you know what? I think we can all see ourselves in the limitations of Absalom. Isn't it really easy when you're dealing with somebody's issues or your own to just say, you know what, just, I don't see what the big deal is. I don't see why it's so hard for them to do that or to get over that. It's really easy to encourage denial. Or the other side, it's really easy just to seek revenge, isn't it? To be angry, to want to solve the problem in your own way. And I think grace calls for shooting right down the middle, and it's awfully hard to be a good soul care in that situation. 
Let's talk about David here. And I think he is the biggest disappointment of them all. Verse 21, when David heard of these things, he was very angry, and that's about all we get. Well, that's good, he's angry, but is that all? We see David as angry without action. There's no action. That's good that he's angry, he should be. Where's the action, David? What are you going to do about this? He does nothing. At least that's, I mean, I can't see him doing, taking any kind of action. This is his daughter. This is his daughter. At the end of the chapter, look at verse 39. If you ever get, take, a, take a look at that, you'll see. It seems like David, what he's really longing for is Absalom. He wants to be with Absalom. What about Tamar? And then we learn that he was actually comforted. He was actually comforted by Amnon's death. (laughs) It's probably a good thing that my son is dead over that. It's as if David and Absalom share the same thinking that murdering Amnon was going to solve the problem. I know how we'll atone for this. We'll kill Amnon. (laughs) Problem solved. Not even close. And it's, it's almost as if Absalom and David have given up hope of healing. There's no hope for healing. There's no hope for reconciliation. There's no hope for forgiveness here. I know what we got to do. Amna or uh, Tamar, you know what? No hope for her. The only thing we can do, kill Amnon. So a bad situation gets even worse. I want to point out three ways that this points us to Christ. All right? David's family points us to Christ in three ways here. <laughs> At least. There's probably more. David's family is filled with corruption. If, if you read the first 22 verses, depending on how you count them and all of that, there's at least 20 familial terms. I mean, if you read these verses, you'll see brother, sister, brother. All over the place. And I think what the author's trying to do is make it very, very clear that this hot mess is all in David's family, and it's all coming from David's family. As great as we see David be, he was becoming so great, so great, so great. Gee, he might be the promised one. He might be the deliverer. No, no. Absolutely not. From what we saw last week in chapter 11 and 12, now this, it's very clear David's family leaves all humanity pointing to Christ. He is the one who is going to redeem this mess. He has to. A second way that we see this whole situation point to Christ is we see David's deficiency. His daughter is raped, and he essentially has Nothing for her. I'm sorry, dear, I got nothing for you. I'm basically bankrupt at this point. David's totally bankrupt. He's deficient. And you know what makes this really amazing? Just last week, just one chapter before, 
What happened in David's life? He was just guilty of adultery and murder. And he was what? Forgiven. Doesn't, where's the, where's the breakdown there? All of a sudden, he was just forgiven of all of this? And he can't sit down with his daughter and help her to begin to see how the grace of God can trump and cover the disgrace of her soul? He can't do that? He can't go to his son, Amnon, and say, Son, you have sinned greatly, but let me tell you about a God who forgives. And two years have passed. It wasn't as if Amnon's life was taken by Absalom like that before he had a chance to sit down with him. He had two years. David's bankrupt. This is a problem. This is a counseling moment that Jesus would not miss. And somehow, I don't understand it, David misses him. A third way that this points us to Christ is Tamar's question. Where could I carry my shame? Doesn't this beg the answer? (laughs) The cross of Christ. This question, I think, just echoes in the background of this chapter, and it's never answered. This story ends in disgrace, and it's so sad it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to end that way, but it does. And you see this, Amnon pins the blame and he pours out everything on Tamar for her to atone for it. She can't carry this shame. She can't carry it. Nobody can carry this shame. You can't just say, oh, you know what? Just act like it didn't happen. And then Absalom tries to pin it on Amnon and asks him to atone for it as if that would make it right. Guess what? Amnon can't carry the shame either. And now there's a third shame on the table, the shame of the family, as it becomes this cesspool of hatred and strife and anger and murder. There's a shame on David's family. Who's going to carry this? Who is going to carry this mess? And I think the fact is that the unresolve of this chapter points us to Jesus. It points us to the one who can carry this shame. And the one who did carry this shame, the one who was both willing and able to carry this shame. As I thought about it, Jesse asked me, what closing song do you want to sing? (laughs) You know, I don't know. That's a tough one. And you guys picked the best one possible. But I actually think, you know what the best song is, I think, to sing? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice. We couldn't sing that one in July. It's a Christmas song. 
But that captures, I think, the way this chapter, this question unanswered, leaves us longing. Oh, come. Oh, come. Jesus, come. Save us from this mess. I want to close by offering some help for us in counseling Tamar, understanding her. Let's try to answer this question. Where could I carry my shame? How would we apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to Tamar so that she could have a beautiful headdress instead of ashes? So that the end of her story is a beautiful headdress and not ashes. Does the gospel offer us hope for that? Yes. Is it possible to be abused, to be sexually abused, and not have ashes as the end of your story? The answer to that is yes. Because Jesus has come to proclaim good news, to give a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. There's so much to say. I tried to do my best to condense it down. And I would just say this. First, Tamar needs to get her voice back. She needs good listeners in her life. People who are willing to enter into her shame and listen and carry that. What does that mean? Give her her voice back. It means that Tamar, first of all, was silenced twice by Amnon. He did not listen to her. She said no, he did not listen to her. She didn't want to be shut out, he did not listen to her. And then, to make matters worse, Absalom and David did not listen to her either. They did not give her a voice in the matter. And when Tamar was violated, she was rendered powerless, completely powerless, physically and emotionally. Therefore, she's incredibly vulnerable to having faith in a God who is good, How is she going to believe that? She needs help with that. How is she going to have faith in people that they're good? How can she not feel shameful and disgusted about loving other people? She needs her hope restored, that she will have hope again, that there is a bright future for her. She needs her peace with God and with others restored as well. Abuse damages our peace. Being at one with God. It causes us to feel false guilt that leads to a sense of worthlessness and soul ugliness. Tamar is dealing with that. One victim of abuse described it this way. I am convinced that people's eyes can pierce right into my soul and see the pit of evil that I and everyone else wants to reject. Giving Tamar her voice back means that the peace that she lost with God can now begin to be restored. So how does Tamar get her voice back? We listen incarnationally. We incarnate the gospel of Jesus. We incarnate the person of Jesus, the wonderful counselor. This means that the church 
has the incredible privilege and responsibility of being Jesus to somebody in their shame. And I think Jesus is the only person who can get in there. Does it have to be Jesus? Can't we just use some worldly methods? I'm sure those can be helpful. But none can actually deal with the root of the problem. Only Jesus. He's the only way. Why? Because there's shame. And the cross was more than just physical torment. It was a place of shame. Luke 18.32 For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the what? The shame. That means Jesus entered the cross, not just physical pain, but all the shame that came with it. He enters in. Jesus the Savior is not put off by the ugliness that you might feel in your soul. In fact, Jesus was shamed to deliver all people from their shame. And as we listen incarnationally to an abuse victim, they begin to see themselves not as they feel, but as Jesus sees them, a beloved child of God, beautiful in his sight. They begin to see that the grace of Christ is greater than the disgrace of their soul. Now, on the one hand, when Tamar laments with ashes, she laments. She's displaying on the outside the evil that her soul feels like on the inside. So when Tamar was sent out of the presence of Amnon and the door was bolted shut after her, she may have done the same thing in her heart. She bolted the door of her heart shut to God and to everybody else around her to not let them in to see what they might find there. But on the other hand, her loud lamenting is screaming out, for someone to come in and deal with it. Please, give me my voice back. Please, I don't want to be a thing. Humanize me. Tamer needs somebody to embody Jesus and listen to her. And by so doing, give her her voice back. It humanizes her. It makes her a person, again, who can begin to explore her feelings about God, about the world around her, about people, to build trust to have hope. Now, Satan knows that God built us to trust him and to trust, and if trust is violated by people who are supposed to be trustworthy in this world, it is really easy to lose the ability to trust in God and to hope in God for any future good. So listening to Tamar empowers her to trust and hope again. It gives her a sense of power that was lost when she was completely powerless to stop this evil thing in the first place. GCF, may we be good listeners. Let's not be like Absalom who just says, you know what, just, it's not that big of a deal. In all the different ways, I encourage us to think about the different ways 
that we encourage a kind of uh, notion of denial, that we project a notion of denial for the person and for ourselves. How do we self-counsel ourselves? Just deal with it. Not that big of a deal. Just brush it away. It is a big deal. And there is grace. There is healing available in Christ. So where could I carry my shame? Jesus can handle it. So his people that are entrusted with the riches of the gospel are also called to handle it together. Now let me close with this. Can you imagine if David, her father, would have taken action and if it looked like this? I'm going to read a quote from Robert Kellerman in his book titled Sexual Abuse, which if you want to find more out about this, it's an excellent, short, smaller book. Here it is. I wonder how the sordid story of Tamar might have ended had David offered eyes of grace to his daughter. What if he had taken her into his house? What if he had looked his daughter in the eyes and said, I love you, sweetheart. You will always be my precious princess. I am so sorry for Amnon's wicked sin against you. What he did to you is evil, but God is good and gracious. As he has forgiven me in my sin, so he accepts you in your suffering. May my love for you and my arms around you be a small taste of the love your heavenly Father has for you. Then, imagine David saying, Come with me. Hand in hand, they stroll to an enormous closet. David flings open the doors, revealing richly ornamented robes for the virgin daughters of the king. But father, Tamar protests, I can't, for I am no longer pure. David responds, Hush, my sweet child. All is cleansed. In the eyes of the king of Israel and in the eyes of the king of kings, you are whiter than snow. Tamar then selects a beautiful feminine purple robe with white lace, dignity restored. She becomes renowned throughout the ancient Near East as a woman of gentle grace. If only her father, the king, had envisioned the beauty of her soul, the world could have rejoiced that grace makes a rape victim a spiritual virgin. Why didn't David do this? It was in his power to do it. And I think the answer to that is, now we're beginning to see how David and his failure points us to Jesus who does this. Jesus does not miss these conversations. He is the one who is anointed by God to bring good news to the poor, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins and for everything that that entails. 
Help us to have eyes to see all of the amazing benefits that are ours in the forgiving work and the atoning work of Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us, you would help us, Lord God, apply the good news of the gospel in all the ways that we need help applying it so that we would be your bride, that you would make us shameless because of the forgiving work that you have displayed and accomplished on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.